well, if you're visiting, we're just super glad that you're here. Uh, this is uh, just a worship service. We love to worship Jesus, and we love to sing to him. We love to study the scriptures. We love to give generously. We love to take the Lord's Supper, uh, which is also a form of worship. We remember him and, and his sacrifice and his death. And so if you're just curious about um, what all this is or what's happening here, um, or our hope for you, our hope very simply is just that you would know uh, the God-man Jesus who came and lived and died and rose uh, to offer forgiveness of sin, reconciliation with God, life everlasting, joy now, joy later, uh, a walking, living, active God who's involved in your life, who cares deeply for you through uh, his person and work in his son. So we just love Jesus for what he's done for that um, and what he's done in that. And so um, we're in the book of Luke now. Um, if you have your Bibles, go to Luke chapter 7. We're studying through the gospel of Luke. One of the things that we love to do is just teach through books of the Bible so we can see the, the whole counsel of God, so we can see uh, all that God wants to say, God wants to teach through his living, active word. And we're in this unique gospel. Luke is a doctor or a physician. Uh, he cares about medical diagnosis, which is why you'll see uh, throughout this gospel he talks a lot about the healings. There's more healings in this gospel than any other gospel. And he's specifically writing to a Roman official who's probably skeptical of the things of Christianity, skeptical of the things of God. And so uh, I always say, if you're in here and you're uh, not sure that you believe who Jesus is, you trust, you're not sure if you trust the scriptures, we're, you're in good company because this is who Luke is writing to. And he wants to lay before Theophilus and all of us why we can trust that Jesus is the Son of God, why he is God, okay? Not just human, not just divine God, but he is humanly speaking and divinely speaking all that God wanted him to be, to be the perfect sacrifice for our sin. And so uh, we're going to see that continually play out in the Gospel of Luke. And we said last week, Luke never writes anything randomly. He never kind of just inserts things without thinking through it. It's always purposeful, meaningful, uh, with his end goal in mind of showing that the life and teachings of Jesus evidence that he is God in the flesh. And so um, here's what we're going to see this morning as we look at Jesus um, going and traveling, going about his ministry, preaching, teaching, healing. Uh, he's going to raise a widow's son back from the dead. Okay, now there's a lot of the reasons why that we're going to see this, but, but here's number one. Here's what Luke wants to, wants to do for you as he writes this gospel to you and to this Roman official. He wants to leave no room for you to think Jesus is anything other than God. Okay, so he, Luke doesn't let you land in this weird place where he's just kind of a good prophet, nice moral teacher, he kind of did some good acts, want to follow his ethical living, he kind of puts the morality of life to follow behind him. Are those things true? Yeah, but that's not primarily why Luke is writing this. Okay, he wants you to understand and have absolutely no room to consider Jesus anything other than God. Uh, and that's huge for why Luke writes this. And so uh, he's going to provide that for us. He's going to build his case, keep building his case. Uh, this morning he's going to use Jesus' very power over life and death. Uh, that's what we're going to see. So let's go to verse 11 in chapter 7. And uh, this is what Luke writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit. He says, soon afterward, okay, well soon after what? What happened last week? That, that's all, wow, we got short-term memory loss in church at Berg. Okay, no, I know you're just afraid to say it. Centurion's servant, right? I mean, Jesus is doing its ministry. He goes to Capernaum, okay, and he, he heals the centurion's servant. Centurion's servant was a Gentile. There was no reason for him to love him, like him, do, do good for him. We see just unmerited grace, unmerited favor. We see that God not only heals the servant physically, but he heals the centurion's servant spiritually, right? Okay, so we see that God is extending 
grace, when Jesus enters our life, when Jesus comes close to our life, we see our unworthiness, we see our sin, we're not like the Jewish leaders of the day saying, hey, you gotta be good, you gotta obey the law, you gotta do your merits for God to like you or appease you or do something well for you. Jesus shows, no, it's solely about what he does and what he did. And so we saw that beautiful thing of the centurion servant. So this is shortly afterward. Okay, he leaves Capernaum and he heads to this town called Nain, okay, which Luke tells us about. He goes to a town called Nain and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. Okay, so he goes to Nain. Okay, look, I, I think this is the only place in the Bible Nain is mentioned. So the natural thought's going to be, why Nain, right? Are you wondering that? I'm wondering that. I'm reading this going, okay, why does he go to Nain? Why does he go to Jerusalem now? You know, why does he go to the big city? Why does he go just invade that space and just show who he is and do all these miracles and roll out the kingdom? And, well, he goes to Nain for a reason. Nain is like probably a 22-mile walk. Uh, adjacent to uh, Capernaum, so it was probably a whole, took him a whole day to get there, and he's got crowds and disciples with him. So remember, this is this is not just Jesus and like three of his compadres. Okay, this is this is a massive crowd. Okay, and, and listen, some people, John six will say, some people desert him after a while. They're they're following him and they leave him. Other people are going to say, hey, they stick with him. Here's the one thing you got to get: the crowds always consistently continue to grow. Okay, so we're with Jesus. As he heads towards Jerusalem and does his ministry, the crowds only continue to grow. People attach themselves to him. Now you've got deepening Christians. You've got faithful followers. You've got seekers, skeptics. You've got all kinds of people that are like just thrill seekers, want to see another miracle. This crowd just keeps growing and growing and growing and growing and growing. And Jesus decides to head to Nain. Now here's why it's so important to ask that. Nothing God does through his son is random. Like nothing. Okay, so understand, you're reading Jesus' life. He's never walking going, hmm, I wonder where I should go. Like I wonder if there's someone hurting or someone lame or someone dead. Like he's not, he's not wondering that. He knows all things. He's fully God, right, in his humanity, in his full humanity, he's fully God. So, so he knows what's going to take place in name. Okay, so he is purposely going there. He's not just like, hey guys, let's take a detour. This is an obscure town no one goes to. I don't think you've even heard of it. Hey, let's walk there. No, he has he is intention. Now, no one else knows why, but Jesus knows why. He knows there's going to be a funeral procession. He knows there's going to be people exiting that town through the gate. We're going to see him uh, get close to that. So understand, everything Jesus does is divinely purposeful and meaningful. In this particular case, he goes to Nain. Verse 12, and as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died. There's the clinical diagnosis of Luke, right? He's a physician. He's telling you he was dead. Okay, he's not leaving room for wonder. Behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Okay, so because Nain was so small, as they approached this, they didn't have like this big, huge, like, you know, entry gate to walk through with walls around it. Like, no one's going to be dropping World War III on Nain, okay? So, like, they don't need to protect themselves. So, you know, a good picture for this has been to Europe or when I was in uh, Greece and Italy, I remember walking. And there were these little towns that just kind of signified like an entrance to the town, right? Just these two little posts, a little gate. You can just walk around it if you want to. You know what I mean? You're like, why is there a gate here? It makes no sense. I'm just going to do this because I can. You like walk around it. Well, there, there's this, that's what it is. It's just signifying that you're entering a city or a little town, an obscure town. So that's the type of gate this is. This isn't like armed guards, Roman soldiers, you can't enter, you shall not pass, okay? Lord of the Rings, if you've watched it, right? So, so 
some of you behind that. So, so this is what they are. So they walk up to this gate, little, little town, little gate, signpost. They're about to walk through this entryway into Nain. They know that they're here. And here we see in this super rural, possibly, area, as they come, I love that Luke includes that word behold. It's like, aha, right? This is why we're walking to Nain. Right as they're converging at the, at the gate, there's this funeral procession. And there's a, a man on a stretcher. Okay, now listen, just, just Jewish custom, Jewish culture, uh, funerals went really fast. They, never, they hardly ever embalmed the body, so it was like it decayed right away. They wanted to do the funeral within the day before it went to night. So this is like, we got to go bury this son before darkness comes. And they usually always put him on a stretcher, never put him in a coffin. So he's walking out, they're, they're, they're walking him out on a stretcher, and uh, they sprinkle water, wrap the body. And as he's coming out, you see this funeral procession. Now, now here's what would happen is, is it was just a, a sorrowful time. Okay, especially for Jews. And so, so here's what you got to understand. They would hire women to just wail. Okay, so you've got women just wailing, adding sorrow. Then they would hire flute players. I guess the flute's just sad, right? Sorry if you play the flute. I mean, I, I love you, but it's just, it just, it just, you know what I mean? It's just somber. It's just sorrowful. So they'd hire flute players that would come out, and then there would be a guy with like a cymbal just, just clanging his cymbal. Okay, just playing sorrowful tunes as you walked out. And here's another reason they did this. It was so noisy that people in the town as they saw him walking out would join the procession if they noticed who it was who had passed. So it was just this noisy procession. Think, just, just picture, just women wailing, deeply sad. That's why if you read the prophets, you can read Jeremiah, Amos, all these guys. You know they'll actually say in circumstances that were really sad, hey, weep as if your only son has died. Like, like he's just, he's showing you the emotion of the culture at this time. It was a deeply sorrowful time, sad time. I mean, this was the end of legacy. This was her only son, right? No lineage. So when your only son passed, it was deeply sorrowful. It was deeply sad. So um, there, not only has this woman lost her husband, she's lost her only son. So, so get into the story, as I always say. She is grieving. She is deeply, deeply mourning over this and I love that Luke says aha this this behold this this these people are exiting this man who had died is being carried out and those details matter now let me just stop for for a second um as I was reading this some of you 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 know what it's like to feel what she's feeling right now right you've you've had serious loss recently a long time ago, maybe some time has passed, it's resurfacing. Okay, you've experienced the loss of someone deeply close to you, maybe a child like this woman, maybe a spouse, maybe a family member, right? So, so, so you know how she's feeling, right? You know the type of indescribable loss she's feeling as she's walking out and people are mourning this loss. And, and here's what I just want to say, all of it, because you see Jesus show up right when he was supposed to. Like, you got to understand, Jesus is never late. Like, Jesus is never the ambulance driver showing up late. He, I would say he's always the surgeon doing, he's active in your loss. He's active in your weeping, in your sorrow. Right, so we never accuse God going, hold on, you're just showing up late, I wish you, no, no, he's always there right on time, right when he needs to be. And, and we're seeing this, right, that, that Jesus is going to show that even in the deepest possible pain, he's going to show compassion. He's going to weep with her. He's going to say, hey, I'm, I'm active in this. I'm not just a God that's hands off and I kind of identify with you or sympathize with you. I actually feel what you're feeling. Like, I mean, 
Anytime you guys have experienced loss, don't you want someone just to feel it? Right, like, no, I, I know that you care, I know that you feel, you're comforted by people, but only to an extent, right? You want someone who can understand, well, okay, God understands the loss of his only son, God understands what it's like to suffer and die and identify with us in suffering, in pain, so Jesus is going to do this, and he's not late, he's right on schedule, and he's active in it, and he's not a God of the universe who's out of control at the end of the day, regardless of how it ends. It's Jesus is with me. Jesus is in this. Jesus is walking in the trenches alongside me, right? So Jesus never rescue you, rescues you and saves you just to destroy you. <laughs> he, he saves you to be with you and walk with you and love you and show something completely otherworldly to us, right? So this is what I, I really want us to get. If we can get in our heads that, that there's no place in time that God isn't, right? Because here, here's what I think. I think we theologically probably believe, well, well, the future is a place that God knows, but he doesn't exist in. No, no, what you, need, you need to get out of your head that the future is something God only knows and get in your head that the, the future is a place that God actually stands, like, he rules and reigns outside of time. So he's not in time confined by what we have. He's outside of time, sovereignly ruling and reigning over. So the future, all those things that are going to happen, the, the pain you feel, the loss you've had, God was already there. You tracking with that? You following that? Like, that, that's our God. That's the God of the scriptures. That's how we know he's not showing up late. That's how we know he's not surprised. Going, oh, I missed that one. No, no, then he engages it because he was already present. He was already waiting for it. He was already ruling over that, and so that's what we're seeing here. Verse 13, let's see this play out even more. When the Lord saw her, verse 13, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up, came up and touched the buyer, and the bears stood still. So out comes this noisy, wailing, flute playing, clang, you know, cymbal clanging, noisy crowd, and Jesus does something you'd never do in a funeral procession. Right? I mean, can you, can you imagine this? I'm, I'm reading this. No one, and no one there's expecting to run into a funeral procession or a man being brought out. Jesus did. And, and this scene is outrageous to the natural mind. That's why I always say, when you read the Bible, like, get in the story. Listen, can you imagine a funeral procession and someone walking up in the middle and being like, hey, hey, hold on. Hey, don't cry anymore. What would happen? You get the boot. Right? I mean, you probably get pummeled by the people around you. Like, how compassionless of you? How, how heartless of you? Really going to tell this woman who's, who's weeping not to weep? You're going to stop a funeral procession? I mean, doesn't that sound crazy? Okay, get in the story, right? Jump in it. I mean, this is what's happening. I mean, this, is, this makes no sense to the natural mind that Jesus would do this. And many of these people in Nain, who knows if they knew everything about Jesus or what he looked like or who he was. So here he is just walking up going, Hold on, funeral procession, hold on a second. Bears, can you stop? I mean, why'd they stop? No one does that. No one comes up and, and, and furthermore, they knew, you don't, you don't touch a dead body, you're made unclean. You don't, you don't get near this stretcher. You're going to be undefiled. You're going to be unholy. They all knew that according to Old Testament law and Old Testament things. So here, here he comes up, and amazing, I love this. Jesus has compassion on her. Jesus is moved that word is like in the gut of your stomach it's churning like you're almost sick with grief with somebody you ever had that 
you almost feel like maybe you want to throw up. You're just so sorrowful. You're grieving to the point of your stomach is just churning. And Jesus has this type of compassion. And let me say, um, stop here for a moment because Jesus is demonstrating something that is totally exclusive and unique to him uh, against the backdrop of all other deities and other belief systems. Like, like Jesus is the only compassion-filled, mercy-giving, all-loving, all-kind God. That's why consistently in the Old Testament, there are no other gods like you. Yeah, they have, they have compassion, they have love, but it's always in a job or a reason to appease them or do something for them. Or this is unbridled, unrestrained compassion, just identifying with humanity. He's just identifying with me, just saying, man, I, I'm grieving. This, this, spiritually speaking, it's just even, not even the case, not even in there. There's no other savior gods like Jesus who, who says in Exodus, I'm a God that is not like any other, that shows compassion and kindness, right, that I grieve with others. I mean, this is a, a, a consistent attribute of him. And so we see Jesus doing this, and we know God is like that. And we know in Judges that God actually felt the misery of his people. Like he felt it. So want to know what God is like? You look at Jesus, right? So we're seeing Jesus' compassion. We know God's compassion is like Jesus. Jesus is the perfect image of God. He's the, the imprint of his very nature, Hebrews 1.3, right? So, so that's what you're seeing here in Jesus. You're seeing what God is like. I mean, some of you think God is just a dictator, just wants to beat you over the head. And God is kind. He's endlessly compassionate and gracious and forgiving. He doesn't leave the justice to anyone else, he still enacts justice, but in that he is offering mercy and forgiveness. He's the judge and justifier, right? He is, he is all things perfectly, beautifully. <laughs> this is amazing what we're, what we're seeing here. And I love that he's driven to compassion. He's identifying with this woman and he feels what she feels. Um, and then this is great. He, he goes in and he, he touches the stretcher, like he touches us with it, with what he feels. He's near. It breaks his heart to see this woman in sadness. It breaks his heart to see loss of love. And I love it. His compassion moves him to action. He doesn't just sit there and go, oh, I'm just weeping with you, which, which honestly is enough. To have the divine son of God comforting us in our affliction and suffering, that's enough. To have divine comfort, not human comfort, in the midst of hurt and pain, that's enough. But he goes further because he wants to demonstrate something. I love this. And, and he's showing that he comes up the stretcher. The pallbearers stop. They knew that if you touch a body, you could be defiled, unclean, dirty, but nothing defiles Jesus. And he reaches out and touches it. It reminds me of Hebrews 7. It says, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Right? It's fitting. Yeah, that, that's, that's right. That's glorious. That, that is, it's fitting that we have a high priest. When he touches sinful human beings or things that are defiled, it makes us not more, more dirty but clean and it doesn't defile him. Right, because anybody else, any human that would touch anything, man, you're defiled, you're, you're dirty, you've got to go get clean. Not Jesus. Right, he's set apart. He's totally different. Our high priest is not human. He is God. He is humanity in that sense, but not fully human where he is defiled by sin or made unholy. I mean, this is the high priest that we have. This is beautiful. He is purity. He is cleanliness. He is righteousness. So let me just ask a question before we move on. Um, where are you feeling 
deep in the pit of your soul sorrow right now. And if you're not, it's coming. Or maybe if you're not, it has. Maybe the waters of that will wash over you again in another month or another week. Where are you feeling deep in your pit of your stomach sorrow? I want you to, I want you to take yourself there and then know in, in that space where you're feeling it, in whatever that is, Jesus is not indifferent to you. You're like this woman. He's not indifferent to you. He's active in that. He's getting involved in that. He's not hands off. He's not just watching you weep at home by yourself. He's weeping with you actively. The God in human flesh sitting on the throne reigning and ruling, he's weeping with you. He's not just identifying, he is coming inside and he is touching those spaces and going, no, I'm, I'm, I'm in this too. That's crazy. He's not indifferent towards suffering or immune to it, right? Remember, we have a priest, Jesus, who tasted the full sting of death, right? Fully, thoroughly, completely, he knows what it's like to suffer and die. So I just want to mention, if, if we're here feeling this, you know that you have a God, the Father of this Son who identifies with you, and a Son who walks with you in it and touches those spaces, right? Verse 14, we're going to keep seeing this happen. And he said, okay, Jesus, finally he's saying something. They're like, who is this guy? He's just touching this dead body. He's going to be defiled. He's going to be unclean. He finally says something. Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up. Okay, that'll break up a funeral. Right? I mean, you got to read the story. I mean, right? I mean, not only is this guy stopping the funeral, not only does he touch, touch a dead body where you're made dirty, you're made unclean. He goes, hey, young man, arise. And he's, the, I mean, the young man sits up. And then he starts speaking. He starts talking. He doesn't need like extra rehabilitation. Like he is fully, thoroughly made new, resurrected from the dead. Right? Jesus doesn't give part-time resurrections. Like he gives the full thing. I mean, right? I mean, that, that, and we're going to see even that with raising our dead hearts to life. But look at, look at how he, he steeps in, he steps in. I love this. He, he says, stand up, rise up. The dead man sat up and he began to speak. And then Interesting, Jesus gave him to his mother. I mean, so we have this clinical diagnosis of Luke, right? He's a doctor, the boy's dead. Jesus walks up to the stretcher, he touches it, and then he says something that's really nothing short of a sick joke if you're not God, right? Right? I mean, imagine when he walks up to a funeral procession and says, hey, young man, get up. I mean, that's a sick joke, right? If, if you're not the God of all things, who can make him rise? And... The young man gets up. I love it. Um, Jesus doesn't have to do anything. He just speaks. Get up. Last week, the centurion, hold on, hold on. You don't even have to come in my house. Just say the word, my servant will be healed. Just say the word, right? I understand your lordship. I understand your authority. I understand what you can do. 
I understand that. Remember, I tell people to go sit up, sit down, do stuff. I understand my authority, but it's this puny human authority. You've got authority over all things. You, you tell stars to exist and they do. You tell life to be given and it does. You tell waters to come and go. You tell the breeze and wind to go and change and it does. Like your word holds divine power. And so Jesus just speaks. He tells the boy, get up, rise, right? Amazing. And in that moment, life is surged into this corpse. What's Jesus doing? Uh, Two things. He's doing a lot of things. Many things that I don't even know. But just two things. One, he's doing what Jesus has consistently always done, and that's making dead people alive. Right? Spiritually dead people alive, spiritually speaking. That's what he's doing. Look, Look at what Ephesians 2 tells us about this. We can identify with this boy, but God being rich in mercy... Because of the great love by which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, that sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, that's Jesus, and seated us with him, that's Jesus, in the heavenly places, in. Okay, that's, that's through Christ. It's through what he's done. Okay, so the scriptures are saying and teaching us here that because we are sinners, okay, even though you are spiritually alive, you can touch, feel, taste, eat, walk around, you're spiritually dead. You don't seek God. You don't want God. You don't want Jesus. You don't see him as beautiful. But you are spiritually dead. You don't go after him. You don't reach up to touch him. You are laying on the stretcher just like this boy, and Jesus pursues us. Jesus goes after us. Jesus sees us dead in our sin. He says, hey, get up. He resurrects you through his life, death, and resurrection of himself. Amazing. This this boy was not looking for Jesus, not thinking about Jesus. He was dead. And Jesus shows us that in love, in compassion, in grace, in mercy, he pursues spiritually dead sinners. And he has the power to wake them up and make them alive. How? In Christ. Because of what Jesus will ultimately go do. I love how Jesus does this. and I love how the boy doesn't participate in his resurrection. It's, it's, it's grace. It's a free gift. It's, it's amazing, and, and I love how Paul is showing us here that we are dead in our sin and in our deadness. He reaches out, he finds us, pursues us, gives us a new heart, new nature, new power in the Holy Spirit. If, if you're in this room and you're a Christian, that happened to you. If you're in this room and you now love Jesus, walk with Jesus, you were being carried out throughout your life on a spiritual stretcher, and Jesus at one point in your life encountered you, saw you, loved you, chased you down in the gospel of Jesus Christ, hanging on a cross, rising again, and reached out and ripped you up from your dead stupor and made you alive. He did that, right? And he's calling some of you this morning who are on that dead stretcher, just dead in your sin, no love for Jesus, no want for Jesus, no wanting of Jesus in his kindness. He has you here, as part of him coming after you and calling you and wooing you, going, hey, I'm a good God, gracious God, kind God. Only the death of my son is perfect life, perfect death. Resurrection can actually free you from your deadness, your enslavement to sin. And he calls us to trust him and repent of sin. So, so one thing he's doing, I love this, and we have him who, who makes us clean. Jesus doesn't get undefiled when he, when, he, when he touches dirty sinners. He's not made unclean. We're made clean. We're made righteous. Second thing uh, he's doing is 
not only just doing what he's always done, making spiritually dead people spiritually alive, but he's also foreshadowing what he'll do in the present, writing this, and in the future age, right? So, so Jesus is showing that, that one day, ultimately, he's going to go to the cross. After rising, raising this young son from the dead, he's going to actually go and die the perfect death for sin. And then it's amazing, as he's dead in the grave, the God the Father is going to reach down to his holy son and resurrect him. That's going to happen. So this unnatural enemy that is death is going to be conquered and put away with because of Jesus. Okay? So, so not just then because of his resurrection, he's then one day going to say to all peoples, all places that have all lived or all died, get up. At the end of it all, right, we see in the scriptures, John 5, Revelation, he, he is the just judge and justifier. He's going to tell everybody to rise, the dead, those who are alive, and he's going to judge all according to his son and his resurrection, and those who trust in him, love him, follow him, know him, are going to be raised to eternal glory, eternal life. Those who don't, raised to eternal torment and damnation in hell. So, so one day he will raise everyone, a full resurrection, He's unveiling the kingdom even in him raising this widow's son from the dead. Not only is he showing compassion, showing grace, but he's also foreshadowing what he will do one day and what ultimately we wait for. Powerful. Back to the text. Interesting, after Jesus raises him, look, he doesn't say, hey, man, you know what? This is a stellar story. Come tour with me. Let's go on the preaching circuit. Just join. What does he do? Interesting. Your mom needs you. Like, he cares about families. Like, <laughs> Jesus cares about, like, the, the mundane. He cares about your family. He cares about your marriage. Like, he cares about the losses you feel. Like, he, Jesus is like, no, I'm good. You, your mother needs you. Unbelievable comfort. Unbelievable compassion. Unbelievable caring. Unbelievable intentionality. No, I don't, I don't need you. I'm going to keep doing my thing, and you go be with your mom. Jesus loves them in this. Amazing. I mean, can you, can you imagine that reunion? I mean, get rid of the wailing women. Fire the flute players. Get them out of here, man. I mean, this is right. This is a celebration. Now, this ain't sadness. This isn't a time for mourning. This isn't a time for crying and weeping, man. This is a time to celebrate. They're probably getting all the best animals, cooking them up, eating, having a feast. Meanwhile, Jesus just will head on. He's doing his thing, foreshadowing the kingdom, healing, raising people to life, imaging salvation. Just amazing, right? Look at the response from those watching. Verse 16, this has always intrigued me. Fear seized them all. Yes, and that would be you. If you were in this funeral procession, that would be you. Okay, fear would seize you, okay? And they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about Jesus and about the man, right, who is risen from the dead, spread through the whole of Judea and the surrounding country. That's a lot of space. That's a lot of land. That's a lot of farm. That's a lot of real estate. Holy Fear seized everybody watching. <laughs> Why? Because this is what always happens when people encounter the presence of God. Always. There's always this, and that, that word really is a holy fear, a holy trauma. Okay, listen, you got John in Revelation, you got Isaiah in Isaiah 6, talked about last week, you got, you know, Ezekiel, you got people that, man, they lay their eyes on or see God or in the presence of God, Peter in the boat, 
Man, depart from me, gets on his face. He's just, he can't believe it. Whenever you are in the presence of God or you see him, man, holy fear sees you because there's no other explanation. This guy just rose this son who was dead, wrapped, sprinkling on. The funeral procession's going. We're about to bury him outside the gate. He stopped it and raised to life that which was dead. Holy Spirit trauma. I'm in the presence of God. There's no other explanation for this. It's amazing that you see them. So they, they glorify God. In other words, they, they worship because they believe God is in their midst. And, and interesting, right? They conclude what? God has visited us. That's a very familiar Old Testament saying. God is here to help us. Okay? That's in the tent, in the tabernacle. They would constantly say, God has visited us. God has come to be with us. God has come to help us. They're going, wow. God has come to be with us. And this report of God visiting his people through Jesus, stopping a funeral, dead in its tracks, it's traveling to every single news broadcast station. TBS, even if you don't broadcast news, Fox NFL Network's playing this one, right? Everybody, everybody's doing it. CBS, Fox, TNT, TBS, everybody's declaring and showing and spreading this news that, man, God is visiting us. Remember, they were waiting for this from the Old Testament, right? Remember, there was years of silence. Go back to Luke chapter one, right, where they're saying, man, we want God to come and break through the darkness, we want to see his sunlight. So they're, they're starting to get pictures and tastes of, man, God is somehow visiting us. God is somehow here through raising the dead. And then attached to that, the deaf hearing, the lame walking, demons being cast out. But, but here's, here's my closing question, okay? This is where we'll land the plane. Because this is what I'm wondering as I'm reading this. How is it that these people consistently... We'll see Jesus' miracles, see his teachings, they'll glorify God for a season, and then get just super fickle. <laughs> like, you're going to see this throughout. Because here's what's amazing. By the time you get to Luke 19, what's Jesus doing? He's up looking at Jerusalem, just weeping over it. And what does he say? He says, you didn't understand the time of my visitation. Like you only got half of it right. Profound. Because he's, he's showing here, you, you didn't understand who I really was. You kept saying God has visited us, but you failed to realize what Luke is trying to lay before us, that he is God. He, here's why. Um, look at what they say. So important. A great prophet has arisen among us. So important. So profound. So necessary to see. <laughs> That's where it stopped for them. He was a great prophet. Now listen. Was Jesus a great prophet? Absolutely. Greatest prophet who ever lived. Was he a great teacher? Absolutely. Greatest teacher ever lived. But you know the Muslims, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, they all say that. Great prophet, great teacher. It's a half confession. Right? He's just this guy who did morally good things, did some mighty acts. Okay, well, what they failed to see, they thought it was a human being doing things like Elisha or Elijah on behalf of God. They failed to see that he was actually God doing these things. You, you, follow, you follow on that 
Show me some life. You follow that? Good. Okay. It's okay to respond, right? So, so, so this is what's happening. They're, they're, they're following. They're seeing, hey, this guy's probably a prophet, just like Elijah, Elisha. This is why. Matthew 16. What does Jesus say? It's profound. He says, hey, there are all these sayings about me. Hey, you're like a prophet, like Elijah, Elisha. Hey, what do you guys say I am? And who's the one who steps forward and gives the accurate confession? Peter. He goes, no, I know there's all these rumors and all these talk about, yeah, you're just a prophet. You're just a great teacher, but... You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. You are God. You are man. (laughs) Peter gets it right. He gets the full confession. These people get half of it, which is not salvific, which is not enough to believe that he was just a great prophet or did some cool things. He's God. We talked about that two weeks ago. So, So who do you say Jesus is? And how does that transform you and your understanding of him? Because if he really is God, he really did rise, then everything he says should hold crazy weight to your soul. When he says to take sin seriously and you don't take it seriously, that's scary ground to be on. Because this is a resurrected Jesus saying it, who has full authority in his words. Maybe you're vicariously or functionally existing as if he was just a great prophet or teacher. You might claim he's Lord, but you don't live like that. You don't live like he really rose. It doesn't bear any weight on your soul. Who do you say Jesus is? Because here's the thing. If if Jesus is very simply a, a good moral teacher or a great prophet, you and I are still hopelessly dead in our sin. We're still hopelessly being carried on the stretcher. Right? And that's what we're we're seeing here. Because a good prophet and a good teacher can't heal the sin sickness that resides in all of us. Okay? You know what we need? We need a resurrection. Like, you need to be given life. And here's the thing. You don't intrinsically in you have any power to make alive that which is dead. Okay, so so here's what a lot of us try to do. We don't believe in his resurrection. We don't believe in his power. We don't believe in in this that saves us and frees us from the power of sin, the restraint, helps us be restrained to sin, helps us live a new life, new heart, new mind, new spirit, right? We just keep living in sin, trying to fix ourselves. So listen, I say this all the time. Believe me now or believe me later. You're 40 years of living in a secret cyclical sin that you keep thinking you're gonna defeat and you're gonna kill and you're somehow gonna defeat it yourself. It's never gonna happen. Like, it's not going to happen. You can't do that. You don't possess the power to do that. You need a Christ who lived for you, died for you, rose for you, and then literally grabs you and rips you out of your stupor. And then says, here's my spirit. Walk in newness of life. Fight sin. Repent of it. Turn to me. Otherwise, guys, this is this weird game we're playing where we leave every week going, we don't believe in the resurrection that empowers us and frees us. We just try to, like, be sin managers and walk in newness of life and go at it. And so I'm saying, listen, this sin over here, if you want to break it, you have to keep leaning into the resurrected Christ and see him and trust him and know him and pursue him. If you're not doing that and you're shocked that sin is not dwindling and holiness isn't increasing, it's because you're not going after the resurrection, Like, you're not trusting in the resurrection and staring at that to break this sin over here. You're just staring at your sin. Man, i got to fix this. I'm going to go a few more weeks, a few more months. Get over here to the cross, to the gospel, and lean into that and see that and beg God for that and see it in the scriptures and see it in community and see it in the preached word and 
we, we, are, we are trying to live our lives so often with this weird belief, subconsciously or consciously, that we have the power of Jesus to raise to life that which is dead. And you don't. You don't have it. There's nothing in you. You're dead. You're on the stretcher. You're, always, you're trying to switch places to see yourself somehow and go, okay, Mike, come on, get up. Can't do it. It's exhausting. So if you're in secret, cyclical, unconfessed sin and there's no change, why? I mean, how long are you going to stay there asking why? You're trying to raise to dead that which is dead. You need Jesus. You need to confess the sin. You need to walk in the light. You need to repent. Repent is turning away from the sin and walking in right living. Praise God for his freedom. And it breaks you from the power of that sin. It gives you a new nature. And that's why, man, we don't celebrate us here. We celebrate him. That's our mantra continually. We don't celebrate us because we're, we were dead. He made us alive. So we celebrate the one who makes alive. Um, some of you maybe, very simply, just today need to get your eyes off of your struggle and just look at Jesus and his resurrection. And whether that's just talking with someone about that, who you believe is godly and faithful and knows Jesus, whether that's calling someone, asking someone, hey, how do you study your Bible? How do you look at the scriptures? Because I want to see his resurrection in the scriptures. I want to see his power. I want to see what Jesus has done to free me. Maybe it's getting a community. You're just isolated. You don't have any community. Or the community you think is community is just you guys hanging out, having a powwow, laughing. Tell, that's great. But there, if there is no addressing of sin, no walking in light, no pursuit of righteousness, then it ultimately will lead to nowhere but a good social club. So how are you? We've talked about this over and over. Right? We want to actively participate what we know. Here, your growth in Jesus, like your growth in holiness is inextricably connected to you practicing probably everything you already know. You just always want something new. Give me a new technique. Give me a new... Tell me the gospel a different way. No, no, listen, many of us, we already know. And you're just refusing to walk in it. And so if, if you're seeing that, that, that might be a space. Um, I just want to say this, too. Um, we are deeply comforted because I know there's a lot of pain in this room, a lot of hurt, a lot of loss, a lot of suffering. Um, in all of that, you've got a father who identifies with you got a father who saw his son on the stretcher. You have a God who's not abstract, not hands-off, not indifferent to your feelings, one who's actively engaged in them, and who demonstrates love in that process, namely by his son, but also through extension of his life. And so um, know that the re one of the reasons God came was not just to identify with suffering and sadness, was, was to actually redeem yours through his own. Let's ask him for help in that way. God, um, I just want to pray one thing this morning as we consider you and your resurrection, that, um, that we would remember, as we remember and contemplate the resurrection of this son, that we would see and remember much more often the resurrection of the son of God. God, that death has been defeated, that sin has been killed. 
that life has been offered through a resurrected Christ. God, thank you that all that you did, all your life and teachings, all your miracles, even your hanging on a cross would all be in vain if we didn't know about the victorious resurrection. Thank you that the reason you paid our debt and freed us is because you raised our life up from the dead that we just sang. So God, as we observe the Lord's Supper, as we see your broken body and shed blood just symbolically, may we be refreshed this morning. May we be encouraged this morning. May we be thankful people this morning that we have a God who rose back to life that which was broken, that the very things that repaired the risen Son of God and this boy are at work. The same God-saturated power you say in your word is at work in repairing us, in healing us, in restoring us. God, may you save those who are dead in their sin this morning. Might you cause them to see you. Might they repent of sin and trust you and lean into you for full forgiveness of sin, for full grace unmerited by nothing that they've done. May they see you as beautiful and glorious and saving. God, would you help us to practice obedience, to walk in what we already know. Protect us from falling into this life of always looking for new things and new revelations. But just respond to your truth accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen.